In our last episode, we talked all about intelligence, specifically what made us intelligent. In this episode, we jump into artificial intelligence. And we're joined again by David Cracker, President and William H. Miller Professor of Complex Systems at the Santa Fe Institute. Now, this episode was recorded before the release of GPT-4, so David doesn't specifically talk about it, but he does take us through the history of artificial intelligence, from Alan Turing all the way to machine learning and neural networks. And he asks, are we really building something that's intelligent, or are we just building mimics and parrots? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Welcome, David, back on the show, and welcome to part two of our discussion on intelligence. So the last episode was all about the evolution of intelligence. And this is all about the automation of intelligence. And in the last episode, we talked about representation and cognitive inference and strategy. And we ended with briefly giving a teaser about Alan Turing. And I believe that's where you want to begin, David. The work of Alan Turing, you could pick other people, but for me, he's the sort of pivotal figure here. Because in interesting ways, he connects directly to a history of reasoning about intelligence and mind and brain. In 1936, right, he writes a canonical paper where he introduces what we now understand as functions that can't be computed using what we now call Turing machines. In the process of developing that, he basically made the distinction between hardware and software. This was a key point. It was the first engineering analog to mind and brain. Then later in 1948, 1950s, Alan Turing started thinking about computers that could mimic human intelligence. Turing was very upset that no one could agree on a definition of intelligence, the kind of things we talked about yesterday, right? He, he thought that will never be resolved. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be brutally positivistic and I'm going to say, this is what it is. If you can convince me that you are, then you are. As simple as that. And he called that, right, the imitation game. And we'll sit down and have a conversation. And if I ask you a whole series of difficult questions, what's your favorite fruit? What's your favorite joke? What happens when you fall over backwards and hit your head? And I'll just keep quizzing you and then I'll determine, right? Okay. That style of reasoning generated a kind of backlash. It was, you know, it's very easy to fool a human being. We're constantly falling for visual illusions. We're constantly being conned. Maybe Alan Turing just came up with the ultimate con man. And we'll get back to this at the end, right, when we talk about neural networks that pass very elaborate Turing tests. So that for me is the start. I think at this point in our history, the obvious dominant paradigm is machine learning using deep neural networks. So take those, starting in 43, it just, those simple units just start connecting to more and more other simple units. <laughs> and as computer memory and computer processing power increases, those things grow. And it's quite literally that simple. There was a period sort of between the 80s and 2000s where that program stalled. Now, it's interesting. So there was this movement called 
parallel distributed programming. And this was really pushed by cognitive scientists, most notably by people like Rummelhart, McClelland, along with Jeff Hinton, the backprop algorithm. It doesn't matter. It's just a technique for essentially doing gradient descent to train weights in a neural network. They were shown to be able to solve very simple classes of problems, but nothing on a human scale, nothing that would take your breath away. You'd say, wow, that, that's an intelligent agent. And then Jeff Hinton sort of made a discovery, which is that they hadn't been ambitious enough in two different ways. One is they hadn't given it enough data to train, right? That was a time, of course, when the internet existed, the World Wide Web existed. It was now possible to get all these tagged data sets so as to train these in a supervised fashion. And in 20, I don't know, in around 2012 or something, they participated in a competition called the ImageNet competition, where artificial intelligence systems are asked to classify planar natural images, sort of 2D images. And this thing blew everything out of the water, just blew everything out of the water. It wasn't an incremental improvement, it was a massive improvement. And that moment transformed, it moved from what some people call the sort of AI winter to the AI spring. This has been recurrent throughout its history, where all of a sudden people thought, oh my God, those things that we had cast aside as being mere computational curiosities can actually solve very hard tasks, vastly better than the other systems that we've been using, which, for example, in that case, use much more neuroscientific knowledge, much more knowledge of optics and visual pathways. And was that simply down to they give it more data and it had enough neurons, enough computational depth, power? Is it, What was it, David, that really was the step change? Yeah, and this is actually very hotly debated. If you read papers 10 years ago, they would say two things, almost invariably. One was GPUs, essentially processes that are individually fairly weak, but do parallel processing very well. And that came really out of video games because we wanted more and more realistic graphics in gaming. So GPUs became cheap, so they could then be used by scholars, right? So we're always basically trailing behind the gaming industry, essentially, (laughs) (laughs) right? You need market to make things affordable. That's one argument. The other argument was much more nested connectivity, hierarchies of perceptrons, right? Take those early models and make them deep. Deep means layers. So you have one layer connected to another layer connected to another. So you just tens and hundreds of thousands of layers. And that requires a lot of computer memory. So this conjunction of cheap GPUs to train lots of units using backpropagation, that's typically what was used, with vast data sets which existed online that were tagged. So this kind of was the sort of trifecta. Nowadays, it's not so clear. I mean, there was a theorem that was proved called the Sybenko theorem. And it showed that actually a single layer perceptron was what's called a universal function approximator. You don't need lots of layers, actually, mathematically. So why do we need lots of layers in practice? So this is in the deep learning. Why do we, why is it better to have loads of layers when the theorem says we don't need them? Exactly, exactly. And that's, by the way, not really known. And one answer to that question is has to do with trainability. It might simply be that if you have this kind of flat structure, it could in principle learn, but it would take so long to do so. And there's something about the deep learning architecture that makes it efficient. And that's very important, right? Because we only live for a finite time. The universe is finite. 
it's all very well to show that in infinite time you could train <laughs> this flat neural net to solve the task, but if it takes the lifetime of the universe, it's like, thank you very much. What's the point? What's the point? It's very hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. So I think part of it has to do with learnability. But to be fair, and we perhaps come back to this, is one of the reasons why the complexity science of neural nets is interesting, because we don't know. We really don't know the answer. That, I think, is what led to this resurgence. But the most important point for me about this is how much of what they do that appears to us intelligent is already present in the data that they're used, that is used to train them. How much are they mimics or parrots of existing knowledge structure that they're just spitting back at us? And I, and I want to make this quite concrete. Nowadays, I don't know what it's like over there, but here in the United States, there's a huge brouhaha around whether or not we should be shutting off Google's Lambda natural language dialogue neural network because one of the engineers that worked on it was asked by the company to investigate its potential sentience. Said, ask it, you know, what is your feeling about being shut down? And Lambda said, you know, I don't feel very good about it. <laughs> you know? And, you know, and a, and a very deeply existential conversation ensued in which the engineer was convinced that this thing was alive, that we should not be shutting it down. This, by the way, is a very interesting echo of a much earlier similar experiment that was conducted by an MIT computer scientist in a book called Computer Power and Human Reason. And this was Feisenbaum. And he created a program called ELISA. I don't even remember that program. No, I don't. No, I, don't, I haven't heard of ELISA. It's a little bit like a simple video game. It works on a sort of verb-noun basis, a little bit like the video games of the company Infocom. It's a little bit more sophisticated, but you'd enter sentences along the lines of, I don't feel very good today. And Eliza would then say, why don't you feel good today? Well, my boss shouted at me. Why did your boss shout at you? <laughs> you know, and so it was so obvious that this thing was basically just inverting, turning around the sentence, right? But people became addicted to it. They thought, oh my God, this is the most conscientious, understanding entity I've ever interacted with. It really gets me, right? So it didn't take very much for humans to be convinced that this thing that they were engaging with was intelligent, and not just unintelligent, but sympathetic and empathic. So now we come into the present. We have these programs like Lambda, GPT-3, that are, to be honest, extraordinary. I don't know if you've interacted with them. I have. They use a neural network called a transformer. There's a zoo, by the way, of neural nets. That's something else to talk about, many different varieties. But this one's called a transformer. Essentially, it scans through a vast corpus of texts. What it is essentially programmed to do is take a series of words and then predict the most likely next word. GPT-3 is slightly different. Lambda's mainly dialogue-based, whereas GPT-3 is mainly text-based. I mean, just for the listeners to understand, I always say you know, the standard model of physics, which is the most powerful theory we have for the structure of the universe, has on the order of tens of parameters. GPT-3, which can convince you that it's sentient by talking to it through a terminal, has hundreds of billions of parameters, right? So this is an important point. What does GPT-3 know? It's on the order of 45 terabytes of text, a massive library, like the Library of Congress, about 15. So this thing has in its digital memory. It has digital memory of our knowledge or our intelligence as human beings. So you've trained, this thing has been trained 
on human knowledge. And that goes back to a concept you're really interested in is, well, is it really smart then? Is it intelligent? Exactly. I mean, you know, this is very interesting because if you ask someone, it's funny, we talked about this yesterday or first, I can't remember when, you know, what is intelligence and stupidity and so on. Most of us, right, make a distinction between people who know a lot, which is memorized everything, and people who work things out. Now, sometimes that's a bit unfair. It's sort of a lazy way of <laughs> being critical. Or, but there is something to that. You know, we've all gone to school with friends and they just memorized absolutely bloody everything. And so hoping that the right question would come up and they get an A. And the others are sort of lazy bastards and they sort of, you know, but they sort of sit down and they work it out. And that's much more impressive to us, I think. And that's typically when we're actually interviewing people for jobs, we're looking for the latter. We're just thinking, you know, can you think on your feet? Can you work this out for yourself? That sort of thing. This is the opposite of that, right? This has libraries and libraries, bigger than the history of libraries in its little hard drives. And it's spitting out, in some sense, fractured projections through that library that convince us of its intelligence and sentience. It's very important to point out that if you are willing to call that intelligence in the Alan Turing sense, it certainly isn't intelligent in our sense because most of us have not read even the books in our own rather meager libraries with hundreds, perhaps maybe thousands of books on them. So whatever it's doing, it's not doing what we do. Now, to be fair, in the spirit of pluralism, perhaps you know that's, we've discovered a different kind of intelligence, kind of parrot intelligence, and we should respect it. I like that, parrot intelligence. And it mimics, that's what the term you use, it mimics information and intelligence. Would you even go as far as to say it mimics intelligence or just mimics information? <laughs> well, but this is the interesting question people are now asking, right? Because, for example, to what extent do GPT-3 and Lambda encode physics? They encode text, right? So if you ask it a question in text, somewhere in its vast corpus, there is the elements of the right answer that it can find statistically. But you can ask a harder question, which is, what happens when you throw a basketball in the air on the surface of Mars? How long does it take for it to reach its maximum height? And how long does it take to hit the ground? How many times does it bounce? Ask that of GPT-3 and it would say, uh, it can't do it. Can't do it. Mm. Now, it's not that we can all do it, but it's amazing what it can do that we can't do. So that's the kind of interrogation required in the sophisticated Turing test sense to demonstrate that it's doing something very differently. So what do you mean by the sophisticated Turing test, David? What's happening there? The most risible, ridiculous IQ tests were the ones that asked facts about the second president of the United States of America. It's like, wait a minute, that's not fair. <laughs> that doesn't seem like an intelligence test. And that would be a bad Turing test, right? Which is convert Celsius to Fahrenheit. Well, okay, <laughs> we know how to do that, it's a formula. Factual questions, we would not consider interesting Turing test questions. And my colleague, Dan Dennett, the philosopher says, here's a better one, tell it a joke, see what it finds funny, you know, people's ability to process or tell jokes is actually often a very interesting test of intelligence, I think. That's why we're so impressed by stand-up comedians, because it's like, wow, they're the smart people, right? That's not easy to do, think on your feet, manipulate knowledge in such a way as to surprise us. They do amazing things. So that would be a much more sophisticated Turing test. And then even more sophisticated is, in all of that body of knowledge, are there scientific laws? Can you discover principles of symmetry 
this would be a very refined approach. And it's not even clear if they could do that, that they would be intelligence in our sense, because they're still using vastly too much knowledge. And then finally, you get onto why I don't like Turing tests, which is that they don't tell us anything about understanding. And if you remember, you know, we all took exams at school. This was before multiple choice ruled the world. <laughs> You'd actually have to write down your answer, right? You have to write an essay or write, I don't know how it is in Australia. Or... And the good news about that is that people could actually read through how you reason about a problem. And the nice thing about that was that if you got the answer wrong, you could still get 90% because they'd say, look, everything you did there was right. That was correct. It's just that you, you stumbled at the last hurdle. Yeah, screwed up this piece. Yeah, you, you messed up that one part, but you're right. You're, you deserve to be awarded, you know, an A. And understanding is not knowledge and it's not prediction. It's not the appearance of intelligence. It's explaining how you reason. A good example of this is pedagogy. A good teacher, when you don't understand someone, doesn't just show you another example. No, this is the right answer. I mean, that would just be sadistic. A good teacher would say, let me try and explain the principles of why this works. And if you fail to understand those principles, they'd say, let me explain them differently. Here's another way to think about it. There's this beautiful book by Ording. It's called 99 Variations on a Proof. And it's showing 99 different ways of proving a simple geometric theorem, like the Pythagoras theorem. All of them are different. And that book to me is intelligence. It's like, wow, you can do it all those different ways and you can actually explain to me why it works. As of today, although there is a move in this direction, these deep neural networks that can fool us can't explain in a satisfactory fashion. I think that would be a very important next step. And that's the key, isn't it? That fundamentally machine learning is saying we're finding the incredibly complex patterns in here that you can't see with the naked eye. We're saying here's the answer. So they're good at prediction. But it's the understanding. They can't tell you why they got there, how they got there. That's the fundamental difference in what you're saying makes the human smart, or one of the fundamental differences versus this black box approach of, of just spitting out a prediction. Yeah. And I think, you know, and again, these are communities of software engineers and who are hip to this and recognize that this needs to be addressed. So it's not a critique of the researchers in this field, because I think many of them know that. What has shocked us is just how much semblance of intelligence can be achieved by just reflecting the knowledge in the corpus. That, right, that's the first surprise. But it's interesting to ask. I mean, I'm a principles first person, right? You know, people are different, but I learn from general principles. This is what integration is. And ah, I think I understand. And now these are the rules. As opposed to here's all the rules and then you learn the principles. And I, and I think humans, many, not all, are principles first. And I think that's a very different, much more theoretical approach to the nature of intelligence. And then you get to non-humans. And this gets to a very interesting point that is worth bearing in mind. And many people have made this point. And that is that what we might have created with deep neural networks is a super intelligent bacterium. Because if you think about intelligence in a virus that comes about through natural selection, which by the way is mathematically equivalent to reinforcement learning, which is the preferred method of training, they're in a sense storing all of this information in a vast genome, like a bacterium. They've turned declarative knowledge into reflexes. 
what we think requires abduction and deduction and inference, they're showing us can be produced by input-output mappings. It's actually quite a startling discovery. For me, GPT-3 is like a super clever virus. It's not like a human. Does that mean, David, that the induction, the deduction, that's encoded in the training sets in some form or another, and they're then getting access to that? Is that the only way that can happen? Yeah, I mean, that's right. What's happening now is it's a kind of implicit, latent encoding of deduction and induction in the myriad text that it's being trained by. It's a very different approach. It is much more like evolution selecting genomes than it is humans learning rules. In the last episode, we talked a lot about representation and cognitive inference, and obviously we've talked a little bit about induction and deduction there. But do we see representation in any of the automated intelligence out there? Well, that's, again, hotly disputed. Clearly, they're encoding in their neural networks the world that they're being trained by. So from the point of view of the engineer, there is a representation because you can see it. The real question is, do they know that? Can they access their representations? We have this peculiar property, right, through our consciousness of being able to reflect on our own state of mind. I thought this, I think this, and I don't believe myself anymore. That sort of weirdness. These things have no doubt, right? They just encode. And this notion that, for example, Doug Hofstadter was very interested in early on in Gerd Lescherbach, that beautiful book, this notion of self-awareness, reflexivity, recursion, that has been so popular in the AI community is another element that perhaps is missing here. I've always thought that a better Turing test would be a test in which the machine expressed enormous self-doubt, <laughs> right? So if you asked it, are you intelligent? You'd say, very unlikely. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, am I? I might just be a big neural network. <laughs> so, you know, so that certainty thing is a bit disconcerting. But it's a very deep question you're asking, which is how to encode notions like deduction are they fully encoded by this massive lookup table or is this more Keplerian, reduced, compressed, elegant representation, which we think we have because that's what you read about when you read a math text, for example. You read about these very beautiful, simple rules. You don't learn gazillion instances. So where does this bring us back to, David? So we're interested in complexity. We're interested in understanding complex systems and the underlying principles that sit behind them. Where is that automation of intelligence right now in terms of complexity and where does it need to go? You know, the way I think about this is the history of natural science, right, is this co-evolution of instruments that give us access to an invisible world and theories about their patterns. So a microscope, for example, or a telescope. When it came to the world of intelligent artifacts and productions, we didn't really have a microscope or telescope. I don't know what that would be. And I think what's happened is that these neural networks are like telescopes of complex reality. They encode in their baroque mechanism that we haven't yet understood, the patterns that exist in the complex data sets. So they're like complexity telescopes. So for me, the analysis of the internal encoding of the neural network is rather like the analysis of the images being transmitted back to us by a radio telescope. 
I actually think they're integral and indispensable to the future of complexity science because they're, in some sense, our ultimate instrument for encoding complex reality, which we then will get to theorize about the way that Newton and Kepler and others theorized about celestial mechanics. So it's not the place you stop, it's almost the place you start. It becomes the tool that helps you identify and untangle the complexity that's before us. Exactly. Thanks so much, it was fun chatting. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode.